And that is great news for us as followers of Jesus. We are declared righteous. We are declared blameless and holy through the precious blood of Jesus. And I praise God for the power of that gospel and the good news that we can celebrate together. We can sing together that indeed the gospel is true. You know, several years ago, Christy and I had the opportunity to go on a little retreat to the Gatlinburg, um, Smoky Mountains area. And while we were there, (laughs) come on, Lionel. And so while we're there, someone got us free tickets to go to the Titanic Museum. Okay, and it was incredible. We had a great time. And it's a huge building that looks like a boat in which you get a real-life experience about what it was like to be on the maiden voyage back in 1912. Now, when you go inside this huge boat, they had squash courts and cafes and a swimming pool and game rooms. Now, you compare that to last spring. We took our children down to Mobile for a chance to go tour the USS Alabama. It's a giant World War II battleship that would house up to 1,800 officers and crew, and they had over 75 guns and cannons attached to this puppy. It was ginormous and just a monstrosity to look at. Now, the only thing that these two boats had in common was that they're boats. One was designed for fun. The other was designed for war. Now, could you imagine... If a sailor who's preparing to go fight in war, he's ready to go to battle, and he gets onto a cruise liner. He's going to be pretty surprised about what he's experiencing, saying, this is not what I anticipated war to look like. Now, you take someone who is an upper-class aristocrat, and they're thinking, let's go to a holiday at sea, and they go get on a battleship. They are going to be shocked. They are going to be surprised when they go out to the Atlantic and they begin to be attacked. I find that far too many Christians find themselves in the second category where they identify more as a wealthy aristocrat who thinks life is going to be like a holiday at sea when in reality life here on earth in Christ is a war. You and I must be prepared for the battle. This is the situation that Nehemiah has found himself in in Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We've been going through this sermon series on Sunday mornings called Leverage, Living and Leading for God's Glory. And we've been studying the book of Nehemiah together as a church. And we saw all the way back in chapter 1 where Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And he receives the bad news that Jerusalem is looking really, really grim right now. The walls have been torn down. The, the people are under attack. And it's a bad situation. God raises up Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, makes the 1,000-mile trip, and he leads the charge to lead God's people to rebuild the wall. We saw last week in chapter 4 where the enemy is now starting to give verbal taunts and physical threats um, to Nehemiah and to God's people, pushing back against them, saying, you're not going to build this wall. We're going to stop this work that you're trying to do. Now what's interesting is you make this move in chapter 4, they begin to put together a strategy, a battle plan of how to defend the city. Nehemiah is not just trying to mobilize the people to finish the wall, he's trying to prepare them for warfare. Notice these three truths here in the text. The first is this, God frustrates the plans of the wicked. Verse 15. 
Nehemiah writes, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. You see, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 7, leading up to verse 15, we see Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, and the Arabs who are fighting against Israel and they're trying to stop the work on the wall. But as we see here in verse 15, God has pulled back the curtain on their evil schemes. God has frustrated, verse 15, the plans of the evil ones. Don't miss this. God laughs at the evil schemes of the ungodly. God laughs at the evil schemes of the ungodly. Let me show you. In Psalm 2, David addresses this exact issue. In verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Fast forward to verse 30, uh, Psalm 37. Psalm 37, the psalm writer addresses this again. Starting with verse 12, he says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord, verse 13, laughs at the wicked. Why? For he sees that his day is coming. Don't miss this truth. God is sovereign over the schemes of the ungodly. He is sovereign over the schemes of the ungodly. See, even when evil men and wicked kings rise up to work against God, they are posturing themselves to a losing position. You cannot stop the Lord. You cannot rise up against him and overcome his schemes and, his, and, the, and the schemes of God. He is sovereign over all those things. One of the truths that we, we teach our kids, there's this great theologian named Buck Denver. And he has this little CD, teaches theology to kids, and we got this song that plays in our van. And, and it's so good. He says this, you can't stop a bullet by holding out your hand. You can't stop a buffalo with a rubber band. But standing in the way of what God is going to do will be really, 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 really not so good for you. <laughs> that is such good theology. It's so true. You can't stop the Lord. He is sovereign over all things, even the wicked ones. You see, those who rise up against the Almighty will be brought low. But Kenneth, wait a minute. Why do bad things happen in the world? Why does it seem like the wicked prosper? Why does it feel like things just don't go well for those who are innocent, but everybody who is wicked and has evil plans and intentions, they do really, really well? I think that's a good question. And it's a question that we see asked throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, where David's like, Lord, why do my enemies prosper? Why do the wicked do well? I think there are many answers to that, but I think these seven words summarize the response well. The success of the wicked is temporary. Don't miss that. No one, no one, no one gets away with anything before an all knowing God. You can't get away with anything. And the reality is, judgment is coming. A few years ago, Christy and I had a repairman come to our house to fix some things. In the process, he stole seven, uh, not seven, but several hundred dollars from us. And I was madder than a hornet. And I started praying, Lord, would you please give me five minutes in an alley with this guy? Okay, I'll lead him to Jesus. Trust me, Lord, but I just want to meet with him, Okay. 
I was so mad, right? And then the Lord took me to Romans 12, verse 19. And the Lord said, Kenneth, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And the Lord reminded me, Kenneth, that, that sin that was committed against you, it will be judged. It will be held accountable. And that sin will either be held accountable to this man on that day when he stands before God, or, and here's what I've been praying, if he repents and believes in Jesus, that sin is placed upon Christ at the cross. That is my heart now, is not, God, would you bring vengeance upon him? I pray, Lord, he would be hidden in Christ so that the vengeance that he deserves is placed upon your son, Jesus. I'm praying, God, would he repent and believe? Because here's the thing. Apart from Jesus, I have the exact same penalty as him. I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. But Jesus stepped in and took my place on the cross. And so now those who are hidden in Christ, the judgment no longer falls upon us because it has fallen upon the shoulders of Jesus at Calvary. Listen, if someone has sinned against you, it's not okay. It's not okay when someone sins against you. It may feel, watch that word, it may feel like they're getting away with it. But I promise you, no one gets away with sin before God. It's temporary. And all will stand before him and give an account. And yet, even now, the Lord frustrates. The Lord intervenes on the evil schemes of the ungodly. I was speaking to someone recently who was in tears over the fear that she felt regarding the terrorism that she's seen on the news channels lately. We live in a day and age of the 24-hour news cycle where what is presented to us isn't always accurate or true. It just has to be first. Hey, who cares about what's true? Who cares about facts? Let's just get out there so we can be the first to break this information. And I put my arm around her and I said, listen, God is sovereign over the plans of the wicked. Do not fear. You don't have to fear the evil schemes of the ungodly because God is sovereign over these realities. Now, here's the truth, and don't miss this. Let's spend less time watching the cable news, and let's spend more time sharing the good news. Don't miss that. You see, if we've been getting serious about investing in people for the sake of Jesus who are going to impact their world, the news aren't going to have anything to report. All they're going to be able to talk about is the weather. You see, revival will have broken out in our nation when the police have nothing to do. That's the mark that God is moving amongst our nation. But right now, the opposite is true. The HR has got way too many kids in the system. The police are way too busy. We got problems. This is why we need Christ. We need the gospel through God's people, making much of Jesus. And the more we preach Jesus to the nations and to our neighbors, the greater impact we will have. Now, don't miss this. Well, Kenneth, what about the enemy? What's he going to do? Don't miss this. Satan is on a leash. He's on a leash. Any advance that the enemy makes is temporary. And it's ordained by God. Which means you as a Christ follower can say that everything you face in your life, good or bad, God only works for my good. Everything you face is for your good. There's nothing outside of his sovereign care and control. 
So when you face that difficulty in life, that's not necessarily a good thing, but God uses it for your good. Don't miss this. God uses all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Satan remains frustrated. Because every time he makes an advance, God turns it around against him. When you go back to the book of Genesis, you see Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He gets to the point where he is in prison. God raises him up as the number two guy over all of Egypt. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he's talking to his brothers after he has saved their lives. And he says this, what you meant evil against me, God meant for good. Don't miss that. God is always working for the good of his people. How do we know this? Look at the gospel. At the moment that Satan thought he had crucified the Son of God, he's dead. Three days later, he gets up out that grave. God turns it against Satan. You see, the good news for those who are in Christ is God always, he always, always frustrates the plans of the wicked. And we see it ultimately in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. But also, number two, I want you to see that you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. When you go on in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and, and the armor, and the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, Nehemiah says. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. This is good. Verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Verse 22. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night. Let's stay within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here we see the people of Israel with armor and with weapons, and they're ready to fight. They are designed to protect one another. Nehemiah sets a nighttime guard, and he puts leaders prepared to say, listen, don't take your clothes off. you got to stay battle ready. You'll be ready to fight at a moment's notice. The people had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They're ready to fight. They're ready to work. This is the strategy that they have prepared in order to move forward. This is a wartime mentality. They are battle ready. They are standing on alert in case the enemy attacks. You see, then Nehemiah, he establishes a warning system. He has a communication device, a trumpeter who would prevent one group from being ambushed. So if they see an area that's being attacked, the trumpeter makes a beeline to the area, makes the sound, and everybody stops work, and then they go fight. They go and protect one another. What I love about Nehemiah is he says that the trumpeter stays with me, and we go. Here is a leader who's not staying in the ivory palace. 
Here's a leader who's not saying, you guys go do the work. He is personally engaged in hand-to-hand combat. He's saying, listen, I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to fight for you. In essence, he's communicating this in which I've communicated to my boys. If someone picks a fight with one of you, he picks a fight with all of you. And that's what's happening here. You pick a fight with one of the Israelites, you're picking a fight with the whole nation. Now, this applies to us. But here's one thing I want to be careful about. As your pastor, I'm also a teacher. I want to equip you with biblical theology. And this is a truth that is going to help you understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And it's this. Today, on this side of the cross, true Israel are those who believe on Jesus. So as we interpret the Old Testament, as we look at Old Old Testament texts, we have to see it in light of Christ. The Old Testament is driving us to who? Jesus. Those who are in Christ belong to him. We are his brothers, Galatians 3, Romans 4. And now that we have put our faith in the true Israel, we are the true Israel. So as we look at this Old Testament text, we're going to understand it that ultimately it's driving us to us who are in Christ. We are the true Israel. And the implication we have is that now as believers, followers of Jesus, we gather in local churches as family. This is why church membership matters. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to lock arms with this people. I'm going to say, this is my people, this is my brother, this is my sister, and we are going to fight for each other. Notice I did not say we fight against each other. Far too many Christians, far too many churches wage war against their own. 19th century British preacher J.C. Ryle said this. He says, with whom is the Christian soldier meant to fight? Not with other Christians. Never is the cause of sin so helped as when Christians waste their strength in quarreling with one another and spend their time in petty squabbles. You see, listen, you don't shoot your own when you have an enemy. We are in a war, y'all, and we don't have time to fight against those who are wearing the same uniform as us. We as a church, we don't fight against one another. We fight for one another. We're on the same team. See, God's family protects one another. And when you're a family and you're in a war, you protect one another. You fight for one another. This is why you need community. You see, it's that, it's that Christian who stays at home or disengages. You are in danger. Because the enemy who prowls and like a roaring lion seeking to devour, who do, who do lions attack? They attack the animal that's by itself. But when you're in community, you've got people who are watching your life saying, I'm with you, I've got your back, watch these areas of your life, because the enemy's trying to attack you here. But I've got your back. I'm going to fight for you, I'm going to pray for you, we're going to memorize scripture together, and we're going to fight for this. So what does this look like? Let me give you four questions to help you assess your spiritual community, okay? And there's, there's so much more than this, but I want to give you at least four to get us started here, and it's this. Who do you confess sin to? Who do you confess sin to? In James chapter 5, verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another. You need people in your life you can confess sin to. You don't just can, but you need to. And it's good and right to, to confess sin to your spouse and invite them in to help you wage war. But can I tell you, husbands, your wife doesn't want to have to hold you accountable. She doesn't want to have to do that. 
Find other men with men, women with women, in which you confess sin and say, listen, I'm fighting, I'm struggling, I need encouragement, prayer, scripture to wage war on this. So who do you confess sin to? Number two, who corrects you? Who corrects you? If you see a brother or sister in sin who's wandering from the truth, you're commanded to bring them back. I love how how James addresses this in James chapter 5. He closes out his book by addressing this very issue. He says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen to me. It is unloving when you have someone in your life who's a follower of Jesus walking in disobedience. They're erring doctrinally. They're erring towards sin, and you don't say anything. You may think, again, well, I'm not very confrontational. I don't like conflict. Well, let me encourage you. Pray and say, God, give me the boldness. It is unloving to let people remain in their sin. It's unloving. But if you love them, you're going to save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so you engage. But maybe you're somebody who's like, I love conflict. I love confrontation. And let's put our dukes up and let's do work. Well, then it's time to start praying for grace. Okay? This is interesting. Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, about how we are to address someone who is in sin. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's a sense in which you and I, when we see a brother or sister walking in disobedience, we go and put our arm around them and say, I love you. Repent. Don't go this way. Come back to Christ. This is not the way of Jesus. Come, follow him. And when you're doing that, you're saving your soul from death. This is what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 5. Here is a church that was messed up, y'all. There is a man in the church of Corinth who is boasting that he has a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul's like, what are you all doing? Cast that brother out. Get him out of the church. Isn't that interesting? Well, Kenneth, that sounds awfully judgmental. Well, Paul says that in verse 12. God will judge those outside the church. Is it not you who are to judge those inside the church? It is a responsibility that you and I carry that when we see a brother or sister erring, when we see them going in the wrong direction, it is the most loving thing we can do to call out their sin, not in public, not on social media, face to face. Listen, don't go this way. Repent. Come back to Christ. And they may say, well, you're judging me. You can say, well, if you're in Christ, yes, I am. That's the most loving thing I can do, 1 Corinthians 5.12. You see, you need people in your life who will correct you. And you're willing to go and correct others. Number three, what about who speaks truth to you? Who speaks truth into your life? You need people in your life who are going to tell you what you need to hear. They're going to tell you the truth about yourself. Can I tell you something? This is difficult. It is painful for someone to sit down and tell me, hey, Kenneth, you're, you're erring in these ways, or I'm noticing areas of pride in your life. But this is good and right, and it's good for my soul, and it's good for yours. This is why Solomon writes in Proverbs 24, 26, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. It is something that we need for our sanctification. Fourth, who fights for your family? 
who fights for your family. You see, what we see in the New Testament church is that there are people man, who, who go and protect their family. I'm with you. I'm for you. I've got your back. A few years ago, in a small group in our church, there was a family who was sharing how their son was just being defiant, and it was frustrating the parents, and they were just exasperated. And so another couple, the wife said, hey, I'm picking up your son from school tomorrow. And so she went and picked up this boy from school, took him out for a Coke, and just loved on him and said, listen, knock it off. Come on, get back. Come back this way. Don't, don't, don't treat your parents this way. We're in this together. Come on. What was she doing? She was saving his soul from death. She was covering a multitude of sins. And today, this young man is following Jesus. Because there is someone who was courageous enough to say, I'm going to get involved in the mess. I'm going to go to the problem and say, I love you. I'm with you. Come on, this way. This is the better way. Can I, can I share with you something that's happened in my life recently? God, by his grace, has given Christy and I five children, three of whom were adopted internationally. Recently, um, in a Sunday morning small group, one of my children who was adopted, uh, they were studying genealogy, and he just asked the question, what if you don't know who your biological father is? It's a weighty question. And this disciple maker, this teacher, handled it masterfully. And she said, you know, Jesus was adopted. Joseph was his adoptive father. And if God planned who Jesus' family was going to be, don't you think he planned who your family was going to be as well? And when I heard that story, I started weeping. I'm like, man, there's somebody who's fighting for my kid. There's somebody who's with me. They're fighting for me. And they're, 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 they're locking arms with me. Yes, that's what we want. She's saying, listen, I am your keeper. I've got your back. We're in this together. In Westwood, that's who we are. We're family. We fight for one another, not against one another. And we labor in the gospel together. And why do we do this? Because we have an even greater brother, King Jesus, who is our keeper who loves us enough to tell us the truth, who never leaves us and never forsakes us, and says, I will be with you until the end. We have a greater brother who is our keeper. Third and finally, I want you to see this truth, that our God fights for his people. Look at verse 20. This is so good. Nehemiah tells the people, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is declaring to the people that God was for them, and he would fight for them. What's he doing? He's echoing the words of Moses back at the Red Sea. Okay, what's happening is the people of Israel rise up. The Pharaoh finally says, okay, you, I've seen the ten plagues. I'm tired of the judgment. You guys get out. So the people of Israel rally together, and they head out of Egypt. And as they're heading out to Egypt, God strategically leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he leads them right to the shore of the Red Sea. To the right is a mountain. To the left is a mountain. In front of them is the Red Sea. Up coming from behind them is Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes to his senses. He can't believe what he's just done. I have just set free all of these slaves that were working for us. We don't want to do the work. Let's go get them. 
So Pharaoh and his army come attacking God's people. They are now trapped. They have nowhere to go. Exodus 14, panic ensues within the people of Israel. They don't know what to do. They go to Moses. Moses, why did you bring us out here? What were you thinking? And he says, do not fear. Verse 14, for our God will fight for us. You need only to be still. God tells Moses, raise up that staff. And as he raises it up, what happens? The Red Sea parts. The people walk across on dry land. They get to the other side to safety. Pharaoh and his army pursue in after them. Once the people are on the opposite side, God says, lower that staff down. The waves come crashing in over top of Pharaoh and the army, and they all die. And it's at that moment in Exodus 15, we get the very first song written in the Bible. And Moses begins to worship. He begins to declare the excellencies of God and what he has done in protecting his people. And in Exodus chapter 15, he says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. The fa my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God fights for his people. We see this realized ultimately next in Revelation chapter 19. There's coming a day in which Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is coming back to this earth, riding on a horse, and he is going to destroy all of his enemies. And there's coming a day in which he is going to throw sin and death and Satan into the lake of fire, where they will remain forever and ever. Because the Lord is a man of war. He fights for his people. You may be here today, and you're facing some big crisis. You're trying to take care of an aging parent. You're dealing with a cancer diagnosis. You've got a child living in rebellion. You don't know where your next paycheck is going to come. I want you to know you have a God who fights for you. He goes with you into battle, into war, and he says, I will be your mighty warrior. I will be your strength. I will be your shield. I will be your defender. I will be your strong tower, and I will go and fight for you. Here's reality. Before we come to faith in Jesus, you and I were in chains, we're blindfolded, and we are up against a wall before the firing squad of the enemy. His gun is drawn. We are in the crosshairs. And before he pulls the trigger, a king enters into the room. He takes the chains off of us and he puts them on himself. He takes the blindfold off of our eyes and he puts it on himself. He lovingly nudges us to the side. And he stands in front of those crosshairs. And at the cross, the trigger is pulled. And he laid his life down for you. But three days later, he got up out that grave. That's the hope of the gospel. That Jesus, the crucified and risen king, came and laid his life down for you. And through his great gospel, he 
won the war. Now, until that day when we get to see him face to face, we're in a war right now. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. So our way forward is this. Remember that God frustrates the plans of the wicked. You are your brother's keeper. And God will fight for you to the very end. Look at the cross and the empty tomb.